Welcome back to the Adventure Almanac. Stories about adventure and what we learn along the way. This is part two of Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's Race Around the World. If you haven't listened to part one, we highly recommend that you start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. But in case you need a quick refresher, Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin were two young female reporters on a mission to set a record for the fastest time ever traveled around the world. Bly traveled east from New York to Europe, across the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, and arrived in Sri Lanka only to learn that her next ship was delayed for five days. She was the first to leave New York and was totally unaware of Elizabeth Bislin racing against her. Eight hours after Bly left New York, Bislin traveled west across the United States by train and then caught a steamship from San Francisco to Japan and on to Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, she learned that she was delayed two days and needed to board a different ship bound for Singapore and on to Sri Lanka. Are you ready for the second part of the adventure? All right now, let's go. Finally, on December 13th, Bly saw her ship come in. Although everyone kept reminding her that Sri Lanka wasn't a bad place to spend a few days, she couldn't wait to leave. For the first time, she was behind schedule. The Oriental steamship did its best to make up for lost time. Bly sailed across the Bay of Bengal and through the Straits of Melaka, and a few days later, she reached Singapore, the southernmost point in her journey. She was exactly halfway around the world. The ship slowed down and stopped, but they weren't on land. What was going on? It was 6 p.m., and they couldn't enter the harbor at night. The agony of suspense was almost too much for her. If she was delayed again, she might miss her ship in Hong Kong. The next day, Bly departed Singapore for Hong Kong, and before long, she wished she was back on land. The sky darkened and the water turned into a stampede of giant waves and chaotic foam. Everyone disappeared below deck, and for a moment, she wasn't sure if she would ever see another person again. Then, the Oriental disappeared. The deck vanished beneath the angry sea, and they were surrounded by water on all sides. When the ship bobbed to the surface, its giant motors strained against gravity and preposterous need to climb a nearly vertical wall. At the top of the wave, the ship paused for a moment and then went crashing through empty air straight down diving towards the bottom of the sea. At one point in the middle of the night, her cabin filled with water and she thought the ship was going down. In the morning, she was able to laugh about the danger as the other passengers told stories about bailing out their rooms with tiny boxes and a young couple that wore their life jackets in bed. The boat was still rolling side to side when Bly ventured back on deck for some fresh air. She sat down in a lounge chair and then without warning, she was thrown out of her chair and slid across the deck. Miraculously, she grabbed a metal bar and hung on for dear life. It was the only thing that kept her from crashing through the glass skylight above the dining room. After that, the passengers all huddled together and counted the hours until they were scheduled to reach Hong Kong. Unknown to either Bly or Bisland, at some point on this perilous journey, the two intrepid travelers passed like ships in the night. Bly still had no idea that her race was against anything but time. Somehow, Bly's ship, the Oriental, not only made up for the delay in Sri Lanka, but actually arrived in Hong Kong two days ahead of her initial schedule. Despite the monsoons, they broke the record for the fastest trip from Sri Lanka to Hong Kong. Bly stood in the warm sun and couldn't help but feel optimistic as she watched the ship navigate the narrow passage to the harbor between the beautiful mountains. The Oriental docked and Bly went directly to the steamship's office to book her ticket to Japan. She pushed open the door to the office with a flurry of urgency. The man looked at her for a moment, recognized her, and then awkwardly asked her to step into his office. Without any introduction or small talk, he told her that she was beaten. Beaten? What did he mean? She was ahead of schedule and it didn't make any sense. 
The man explained that she wasn't the only woman racing around the world. Elizabeth Bislin was racing in the opposite direction and she had left Hong Kong five days ago and was three days ahead of Bly. Bislin was having the time of her life. She felt happy on the Thames as they steamed across the South China Sea towards Singapore. Every night she went to bed happily exhausted and woke up in the morning smiling about what adventures lay ahead. Turned out, she loved traveling. She loved seeing new things and the endless curiosity of the unknown. It helped that white glove stewardesses brought unlimited food and most of her days were spent lounging on deck, reading, knitting, and napping. Unlike Bly's experience with the monsoons, Bislin's journey on the South China Sea was entirely pleasant. Her ship pushed through the flat blue seas and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. The only interruption to the endless blue was the eventual peacock-colored waters and the enormous green trees of Singapore's harbor. Bislin arrived in Singapore on December 23rd, only a few hours after Bly arrived in Hong Kong. Bisland was pleasantly unaware of Bly's progress. Now Bly was acutely aware of Bisland's progress. Bisland was delayed overnight in Singapore, so she decided to splurge for a comfortable hotel room on land. When Bisland finally checked into her room late in the evening, she immediately got into bed and blew out the candle. And that's when she heard it, the sound of an animal nearby. Was it a tiger? It was probably a tiger. It was the only option she could think of. In the dark room, all she could hear was the faint rustle of an unmistakably large animal and the sound of her heart thumping so loudly that she feared it would give her away. Why was it so quiet? Had the tiger already eaten everyone inside the hotel? She lit a match so at least she could see the beast before she died, and as the tip of the match combusted and slowly turned from blue to orange to soft yellow, there it was, standing in front of her, a large, very calm rat. The rat ignored her and turned its attention back to sniffing her bags. What could she do? She ignored the rat, blew out the candle, and went back to bed. The next day, Christmas Eve, Bislin departed Singapore on the long voyage between Sumatra and Malaysia, across the Andaman Sea and then across the Bay of Bengal to Sri Lanka. Bly still could not believe it. Why would the editors of the newspaper arrange a race and not tell her? It didn't matter. Her goal was to go around the world in 75 days, and that's what she was going to do. She was racing against time and her own dreams, and she would find a way to win. On Christmas Day, Bly was in Hong Kong and was delayed until December 28th. Why not match her tourist itinerary to her mood? She visited the execution grounds, Temple of Horrors, and the Temple of the Dead. Her optimism didn't return until finally she boarded the Oceanic and set sail for Japan. Bly didn't know it, but the Oceanic was the same steamship that Bislin had taken across the Pacific. Even to Bly's experienced taste, she marveled at the unrivaled comfort of the ship's design. The Oceanic was one of the fastest and most luxurious ships in the fleet. Bly was excited to be moving again. She gathered in the social hall and laughed and told stories with other passengers. On New Year's Eve, they sang, toasted champagne, and ate oysters. Goodbye, 1889, Japan in 1890, hello. It was 80 degrees on December 31st when Bisland arrived in Sri Lanka. Her next ship, the Britannia, was waiting for her. Once on board, they celebrated New Year's Eve with a luxurious dinner and prepared to sail for Yemen the following day. It was a new ship and a new year. Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin were speeding away from each other in opposite directions. In only a few weeks, one of them would arrive home first. Bly was nearly in Japan and would soon be traveling across the Pacific to San Francisco. Bislin was just leaving Sri Lanka, headed north to Europe. Bislin's journey aboard the Britannia was long and uneventful. 
The sea was smooth as glass and an endless blue stretched below them and above them. The air was still and hot and time melted seamlessly between one day and the next. During the day, men played cricket on deck and the evenings were filled with dancing, singing, and theater performances. Occasionally a whale surfaced with a great spray of mist and fish jumped out of the water on silver wings and flew in front of the ship. Slowly she noticed the air becoming drier and when the desolate brown coastline appeared on January 8th, she knew she was far from the tropics. The Oceanic departed Japan on January 7th and for the first few days, Bly experienced beautiful weather and the marvelous speed of the ship. The five-day delay in Yokohama had been torture, but as she talked to the chief engineer, her spirits lifted. They had set the record before and they would do it again. They would make it to San Francisco ahead of schedule. He promised. But her optimistic feelings didn't last long. After three good days, a storm appeared out of nowhere. They tried to cheer her up, telling her that it would only last a day, but the torrential rains continued and did not let up. With each day, the weather became worse. The oceanic strained against the wave. The ship rolled and pitched and spun in the wind. The captain and engineers worked the engines as hard as they could and cursed the storm until there were no more words that could be said. For four days, the storm continued. It was the worst weather they had seen in the Pacific in over a decade. Ply crawled into the dining room and looked expectantly at the maps charting their course, hoping that they had made some progress since the day before, and was always disappointed. While Bly was being tossed about like a toy boat in the hands of a howling toddler, Bislin sailed across the Red Sea and watched a silent, unmoving ocean of desert sand. When she arrived in Port Said, Egypt, on the edge of the Mediterranean, the warm equatorial sun was replaced by cold winds. The time for lounging on decks was over and passengers wrapped themselves in furs and blankets. They cruised across the Mediterranean and into the Ionian Sea and landed in Brindisi, Italy on the morning of January 16th. She only had to cross Europe and the Atlantic and she was home free. Bislin positioned herself to disembark first from the ship. It was close, but she had an hour to make the weekly mail train to France. This was the same train that Bly took across Europe and it cut five days off the journey by steamship. She had to make it. There was a long line at customs, so she left her luggage and sped to the train station to get her tickets and sent a telegram to the Cosmopolitan. The telegram was short and confident. Leaving 145 on mail train to connect with La Champagne and arrive in New York on January 26th. With the update sent, she rushed to the train station. The editors at the Cosmopolitan read her telegram and let out a cheer. It meant that Bislin would arrive on the same day as Bly. The two young women might even arrive within hours of each other. Bislin returned to the train station 10 minutes before departure. She made it, but where was her luggage? She jumped out of the train car and rushed back to her ship. The trunk was on deck, guarded by an Italian customs agent. Bislin stormed towards the official, confused and a little angry. Her baggage was already cleared to go to England. What was the holdup? The custom agent insisted that all bags had to be inspected. She'd been traveling for over 60 days and along the way she had acquired a few things. Getting all of her stuff packed in her trunk had been a scientific process that eventually involved her and the stewardess sitting on the trunk to close it. With great regret, she handed over the keys and the custom agent unlocked the trunk. An explosion of clothes tumbled across the deck. She exchanged a few short pleasantries with the agent and then frantically stuffed, crammed, and begged all of her garments to return inside the trunk. Her artful packing was replaced with brute force and sheer will. She jumped on the lid, snapped it closed, and tore back to the train station knowing that she had been gone much longer than 10 minutes. Luckily, the train was delayed and she climbed on board with her luggage and what remained of her pleasant temper. The train left Brindisi and soon she could see the white peaks of the Alps in the distance. At each station stop, a telegram was waiting, asking her if she would make it to her ship. 
With each stop, the train seemed to fall further and further behind schedule. Unless the ship delayed its departure for a couple of hours, it didn't look like she would make it. Bisland had hope and a plan, but not much else. At 2 a.m. on January 18th, the guard woke her up and told her to be ready to change trains at 4 a.m. She had to leave her trunk and only travel with her handbag. When the train slowed down at the station, she was wide awake and ready to board the train to Paris. If the ship would only wait an hour, she might make it. In the dark of night, she hurriedly stepped off the train and onto the dimly lit platform. She took a few steps when suddenly a mysterious man came out of the shadows and stopped her with bad news. The ship could not wait for her. She was so close to going home. She stood frozen in disbelief as the man dissolved back into the darkness and walked away. Her hopes were crushed. She sat back down on the train and waited. Weeks later, she learned that the ship had waited for her. No one could explain the appearance of the mysterious man, but at that moment, all that Bislin knew was that she still had a chance and it was time for plan B. She could travel to London, on to Southampton, and catch a steamship that was scheduled to arrive in New York on January 27th, just under 74 days. She arrived in Calais, France at 10 a.m. and then caught the next ferry across the channel at 1 p.m. It was a terrible rainy experience, but seeing the impressive white cliffs of Dover was almost worth the trip around the world. When they docked in England, Bislin caught the first train to London and looked forward to a comfortable night in a hotel before continuing to Southampton the following morning. But fate, luck, or whatever you call it was stacked against her. She arrived in London and learned that her ride across the Atlantic was out of service and would not leave for at least a week. It was the fastest ship in the fleet, but a week delay made her goal impossible. Again, she was so close. She had made it almost all the way around the world and only needed a lift across the Atlantic. Twice her plans had failed, but there was one last option. The Bothnia, the slowest ship in the fleet, was leaving on January 19th from Cork, Ireland. She had less than 24 hours to take a night train to Wales, cross the Irish Sea by ferry, and take another train from Kingston to Cork to connect with the ship headed to New York. All alone, staring out the window in darkness, she watched the English countryside flitter by. She had almost no chance of arriving in time to win the race, but she still held on to that small chance. It was impossible to know what Nellie Bly might encounter on her trip across the Pacific. She was exhausted and hungry and had been up since 2 a.m., but she had to persist. The train rattled overnight through the darkness and shook uncomfortably as a violent storm slowed the train's progress. She couldn't catch a break. She certainly couldn't sleep. When she stepped onto the platform in Wales, the ferocious winds covered her in sleet and cold rain. The four-hour ferry to Ireland was miserable. She transferred to another train and after traveling without food or sleep for two days, she finally arrived at the docks in Cork. It was just her luck the only restaurant was closed for repair. There was nothing she could do but wait. Any minute, they kept telling her. Hours later, the tender finally arrived at 6 p.m. to carry the passengers to the steamship. The tender drifted aimlessly against the torrential rain and sleet. Like a leaf in a whirlpool, they were tossed around and around. Two and a half hours later, cold, dizzy, tired, and hungry, Bislin finally pulled up next to the steamship. The gangplank vibrated unsteadily as she stepped onto the deck of the Bothnia. Someone pushed her from behind as she tumbled across the deck and crashed into a heap. Bruised and on the verge of tears, the stewardess helped her to her cabin, and she fell asleep immediately. Late in the evening on January 19th, the old Bothnia steamed away from Cork and into one of the worst storms the North Atlantic had ever seen. Little did they know that multiple hurricanes, dangerous icebergs, and huge swells were in their path. It was not going to be a pleasant journey. Crashing through the waves, the bow and the propeller spent almost as much time in the air as they did in the sea. 
It was impossible to stand or move as the ship was tossed back and forth like a ball in a game. She doubted she would make it across the Atlantic alive, much less in time to beat Nellie Bly. Early in the morning on January 21st, the Oceana and Nellie Bly arrived in San Francisco. Despite the fierce storms, they were ahead of schedule, just as the engineer had promised. Wearing the same blue dress, checkered overcoat, and clutching her small leather bag, she was home. She was back in the U.S. Her face was deeply tanned and her nose red from sunburn, and her smile was electric as she imagined her triumphant return. She had made it. Somewhere behind her, a voice interrupted her daydreams. His face was white as a ghost as he explained that they couldn't find the health certificates for the passengers. What did that mean? It meant that they wouldn't be able to land until they could prove that the passengers weren't carrying any diseases. It was going to be a two-week delay at least. What? Well, that was unacceptable. She commanded them to keep searching until they found the health certificates. They must be on board somewhere. But did it even matter? A stack of newspapers had been delivered to the ship while they were waiting, and after reading her name and all the headlines, she saw that the largest snowstorm in the history of the United States had shut down the entire railway system. 20-foot snowdrifts, as much as 30 or 60-foot snowdrifts in some places, covered the tracks. It would take weeks to dig out the tracks from underneath all the snow. Meanwhile, the editors at the World Newspaper had been working on a plan. They broke their own rules and chartered an expensive train to get Bly home. The fastest train available was moved to Oakland and given a special order to have the ultimate right away to head south through New Mexico up through Kansas onto Chicago and then home. Her trip was the most successful publicity stunt of all time, and the entire world knew her name. Bly had no idea that hundreds of thousands of people were closely following her journey and betting on her arrival time. The newspaper wasn't about to let a little snow slow Bly down. Now she could only get off the ship. After a frantic hour, the health reports were found. While waiting for the quarantine doctor, she climbed onto the tug, ready to take her to land. Anxious to keep moving, they pushed off and started for shore. The quarantine doctor shouted after her that he had not examined her tongue and she wasn't cleared to go on shore. She stood on deck as the tugboat motored away and stuck out her tongue. They all laughed and the doctor waved her on. They motored past Alcatraz Island and the pier came into view with a crowd of thousands of people waiting to see her. At 9.02 a.m. on January 21st, the special train set off from Oakland towards the Mojave Desert and into New Mexico. Bly asked about Bislin and she learned that Bislin left Ireland on January 19th in a storm and they hadn't heard anything since. Sitting on the train, all that Bly could do was wait. It was out of her hands now. The train avoided all the snow and made record time as they crossed California and Arizona. Speeding towards Gallup, New Mexico, they traveled at record-breaking speeds. At one point, they were going so fast that they didn't see the railway workers trying to flag them down. They were repairing the bridge ahead and it was only held together by screws. Danger, danger, the workers tried to slow the train down. Full steam ahead, the train sped toward the bridge. Against all odds, they made it across the other side and kept on going. January 22nd, 23rd, and 24th were a blur as they sped through the desert landscape and prairies of New Mexico, Kansas, and Illinois. At every stop along the way, she shared her story with newspapers and thousands of fans. A constant stream of cheers, flowers, and handshaking followed her from station to station. From Kansas to Chicago, they broke railroad speed limits and set the fastest time from San Francisco to Chicago. The last leg of the adventure was Chicago, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and then back to Jersey City. She was only one day away. There was no news from Elizabeth Bislin, so as far as America was concerned, Nellie Bly was being treated as the winner. 
She was the daring American girl who had traveled around the world with little more than the clothes on her back and had smashed the record. She was a hero being treated like a queen. 10,000 or more people were waiting at the train station in Jersey City. On January 25th, 1890, precisely 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds after she left, Nellie Bly stepped onto the platform to the sound of cannons thundering and deafening cheers. She took off her cap and enthusiastically waved to the crowd. She was the most famous woman in America, maybe even the whole world. Elizabeth Bislin eventually made it safely home to New York, approximately 76 days after her departure. This would have been the fastest time ever if Nellie Bly hadn't arrived four days earlier. A few hundred people, friends, and family were waiting for her to arrive. Although she had an amazing adventure around the world, she was happy to be home. Both women's achievements were incredible. They traveled the world by themselves and completed record-breaking journeys. These days, their style of adventure may seem less impressive, but at that time, it was groundbreaking. It wasn't about strength or endurance. It didn't require amazing intellect. They simply put the pieces together, said yes to adventure, and pushed through the challenges to complete something that had never been done before. Technically, each of them set a fastest known time record for traveling around the world one for an east-to-west route, and the other for a west-to-east route. However, their real legacy was how they inspired future generations to imagine possibilities for world travel and demonstrated what a determined person can achieve. Thanks for listening. If you like the story, please share it with someone else who likes to travel. You can also check out our website where we've posted an annotated map of the journey around the world. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for joining us for our first two-part episode. We still have one more episode in Season 2, a short story about a race to the North Pole. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you, whether it's a story idea or encouragement for another season. If you have a moment, please send some hearts and stars our way and help others find the show. This episode was researched, written, and produced by the team at Adventure Nerds. Original music was written and performed by Drell. You can find more of Drell's work wherever you listen to music and by following the links in the show notes. Until next time, be curious and choose adventure. If you could only make 10 stops on an around-the-world journey, where would you go?